Anyway, uh, John chapter four, uh, John chapter four, and we're gonna we're gonna look at a um, an incident. John chapter four and verse forty six, um, an encounter that Jesus has that's very similar to some encounters he has in the other gospels, um, but John records it. Um, right after Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman, and so many of the Samaritans have come to faith. So John chapter 4 opens with Jesus having this conversation with this undesirable woman, the Samaritan woman. And and whether it's morally undesirable or just the fact that she's a Samaritan and so she's reprehensible, whatever it is, they don't. the Jews don't like her. So Jesus is coming from Jerusalem. He's coming up from Jerusalem, uh, up into Galilee, which is to the north. He passes through Samaria. He meets this woman. And then we read in chapter 4 and verse 46. He came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. So that's looking back to chapter 2. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. Uh, now I'm going to just give you this. If you want it, you can keep it. If you don't, throw it away. But the word official there in Greek is the word basilikos. Um, and we're going to come back to that word. But it derives from the word for king. And it is a royal official. So this is a person who works for a king. Um, and so at Capernaum there was an official whose name, whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you, and that word you is plural in the Greek, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, Kyrie uh, in Greek, um, come down before my, before my child dies. Uh, by the way, all three words for child, all three Greek words for child are used in this passage. John uses three different words. There's no theological significance to that, just John's, John's vocabulary. Um, and the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Um, so there's a lot going on here. Let me give you the geography of it. Um, Cana is about four miles, um, four miles uh, uh, northeast of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. They're, they're, they're basically twister, sister towns. Uh, and Rick, Rick mentioned earlier that Jesus had turned water into wine at a wedding that was probably a family member, possibly Jesus' half-sister, Mary and Joseph's, um, Mary and Joseph's daughter. Um, but Cana is um, about 16 miles um, southwest of Capernaum, um, and I always pronounce this, it, so in, it, the actual Hebrew word is Kafarna, so Capernaum, I always want to put an F in there, but, um, but in Capernaum, it's about 16 miles uh, uh, southwest of, of Capernaum, um, and uh, Cana is about 700 miles, or 700 feet above sea level, and the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, it's at the very northern rim of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level so when this guy says to uh, jesus come down and heal my son he means that literally because it's 1400 feet of elevation that he has to come down from cana to uh, capernaum 
and it's not an easy route, um, and that's one of the reasons it takes a day for this guy to get there. Uh, he talks to Jesus at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the seventh hour. Um, the, whenever you read the hours in the Bible, that usually means hours from sunrise, right? Hours from dawn. So, so it's 1 in the afternoon, early afternoon, um, and then he heads home, and the servants meet him the next day. So he probably walks, um, camps out, and then is finishing the journey, and the servants come to meet him. Um, and so this guy, Jesus heals this uh, guy's son. Now, on the surface, this looks very similar to a, a miracle that Jesus does in the other Gospels where he heals a centurion's son. Um, but uh, John here is very specific when he uses the word basilikos. He, he's not referring to a military person. This is not a military person. So there's a, these are two separate miracles. Now, some commentators, they will go, well, see, here's a case where John changed the story to make it more convenient. Well, here's a radical idea. Maybe Jesus healed more than one kid. Like, I don't understand. Some of these commentators are like, oh, well, this is obvious, obviously an issue. I'm like, we have like six weeks of Jesus' life in the Gospels. You think he might have done the same thing more than once? How often do we do the same thing more than once? You know, so it's like, oh, well, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, those must be different versions of the same story. Or Jesus did it twice. You know, like, like I don't understand the, the issue. But um, anyway, so this is similar, but it's different. There's a couple of things that are different. If you want to read the, the centurion thing, um, the healing of the centurion, uh, you can see that in the other Gospels. Um, and uh, there's there's a lot happening in this that's not recorded in John. Now, remember that John's Gospel is written as kind of a capstone. It fills in some gaps, and it's making argument. It's making an argument, a testimony uh, of Jesus as the Son of God. So John leaves out a whole bunch of stuff that Jesus has been doing. He just doesn't talk about all the things that Jesus has been doing. In particular, he's already healed somebody in Capernaum. All right? um, so, so there's already healing that's happened. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 8. Is the centurion's son being healed. He's already done a healing there. So that's why this guy knows that Jesus uh, is an option for him. But I want you to, to notice as we read through this, again, as you look at it, um, I want you to notice this guy doesn't seem to know who Jesus is. In other words, he's not looking for the Messiah. He, he's, he just comes to him, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's, he's desperate. His child has a fever. Now, today you have a fever, you just take some Tylenol, you put some cold compresses on, and usually you're okay. In the ancient world, because they did not understand the germ theory of, or the germ law, the, the actual science of, of germs causing sickness, they didn't understand how that worked, why fevers were caused. Um, they would often treat them in weird ways. When you read ancient medicine about fevers, they do like things that you should never do. Like if you have a fever, you need to get them closer to the fire to increase their body temperature. I'm like, no, that's the wrong thing you want to do. Um, and so fevers were dangerous. And remember, this is in a society where mortality was at, at such a level that the average lifespan of a woman was her mid-20s and the average lifespan of a man was his late 40s. Um, this was not a society where a lot of people lived long. In fact, the estimates of infant mortality are somewhere along the lines of six or seven out of ten uh, children died in this society before they reached adulthood. 
because of all the childhood diseases. Um, so this guy is desperate and he comes looking for someone. But describing him as a basilikos, as, as, a, as a royal official, puts him in an interesting situation. There's only one person claiming to be a king at this time in this area. Uh, his name was Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod Antipas was uh, the sixth or seventh son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had six wives. He kept killing them. I'm not making it up. Um, he, he was like Henry VIII. He, just, he was killing wives. He killed sons. I think he, killed, he assassinated three of his sons. Um, and you may know about Herod Antipas if you know the story of John the Baptist, that when John the Baptist was imprisoned, he was imprisoned because Herod Antipas had married his, um, or he was having an affair at the time, or had married her, um, a woman named Herodias, uh, Herodia, who was um, his brother Philip's, his half-brother Philip's wife. So he had married his brother's wife, who also happened to be his niece. Ew. Um, double ew. Uh, and, uh, and so John the Baptist had confronted him for that, and eventually Jesus, uh, uh, John the Baptist is beheaded because of his opposition to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is also the Herod who appears in the Gospel of Luke, um, at Jesus' trial, uh, the, the Romans find out that Jesus is a Galilean and they send him to Herod to be tried. And uh, G- John's gospel doesn't record that, but John is aware of those facts. He knows that story. So he, he brings in this royal person um, and, and he tells this story. And we're supposed to see this guy as somebody that works for Herod Antipas. Now, what's really interesting, and I would in no way, shape, or form take a bullet for this, either pastorally or academically or scholarly-wise. However, Jesus had a follower who would have worked for uh, Herod Antipas in Capernaum. Uh, The disciple Levi, or Matthew, was a tax collector in Capernaum. And tax collectors were, they literally were called tax farmers in Latin. You you basically told the, the local authority, in this case Herod Antipas, get some people to collect X amount of taxes. And Herod Antipas would recruit people and they'd say, well, I can collect X amount of taxes in six weeks. Um, I could collect X amount of taxes in five weeks. I could collect X amount of taxes and take only 3%. They had a bidding war and then these tax farmers would take the job. So um, maybe this is Matthew. I don't know. It could be. Um, doesn't, there's not enough to know one way or the other. Um, but Capernaum is not a big town. Um, and this, so this royal guy's got a kid. He's desperate. He wants his, his child to be healed. Um, and so he comes to Jesus and he asks him, um, asks him to come down and heal his son. Now, this is interesting in John's gospel for one reason. John has not healed any, or Jesus has not healed anybody in John's gospel yet. Now, we know from the other gospels he had been doing healing. But the way that John is telling the story, Jesus hasn't done any healing. In fact, the only thing, supernatural things that Jesus has done in John's gospel so far is that he knew something about Nathaniel, one of his disciples. Um, He knew something about the Samaritan woman, and he changed water into wine. So you get this sense that John's um, expecting you to know the other gospels. He's expecting you to know that that Jesus heals people. Um, 
But then when he comes and talks to Jesus in verse 48, notice, and I pointed this out, he says, unless you, and he speaks plural, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So if he's using the plural, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to the people around him. He's not talking to this this royal official. We, we don't know much of anything about him except he's desperate for his son to be healed. And Jesus looks around and goes, unless you see signs and wonders, uh, you will not believe. Now, if you were here with us when we talked about the marriage supper of Cana, you'll remember that Jesus turns the water into wine and then leaves. And nobody seems to know that, that, that he did it except for a couple of, of people and his mother. Um, he does, he's not making a big deal about doing things. Um, and yet that's called the first sign that he did in Galilee, um, in, in John chapter 2. This is the second sign. Now, there are a couple of curious things about this, all right? Number one, who knows that Jesus did this? If you read this, Jesus doesn't go to Capernaum to heal the kid. He just says, your son, is, your son is well. Go home. No one sees the healing. No one sees it happen, except for the servants who don't know that Jesus did it. So this occurs in complete in a, in a separation. Jesus is in Cana. The kid is in Capernaum. His father is talking to Jesus, getting ready to go, go back to Capernaum. The only people that see the kid healed are the servants who then go looking for, the, for his father. So um, we assume when we talk about a sign, we always assume that it's the supernatural thing that's the sign. All right. Um, I would actually contend that the sign is that Jesus does this for uh, someone who is outside of the correct group. Jesus is working his way home from Jerusalem in Galilee, and so far he has had two encounters with people outside of the right people. He has a, this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the beginning of chapter 4. Then he's got this encounter with this guy, this royal official. And then in chapter 5, he heals somebody. Um, and a few, years, a few months ago, or maybe a year or two ago, I talked about what happens in John chapter 5. Jesus goes to a feast and heals people that are just left outside of the feast because they're impure, because of their sickness, because of their issues. And he purifies somebody. He's going to the outsiders in John's gospel. Now, there's a lot of reasons that that is important. Um, Excuse me. If you want to know why Jesus, why the Jews... And, and by Jews, I mean the ruling elite, the, the religious bigots, not Jews ethnically or religiously. But John uses that title specifically for a group of people that spend their entire lives saying, I'm righteous, you're not. If you want to know what's, why they're upset with Jesus, it's because he keeps doing stuff like this. He goes to a Samaritan woman. He converts a Samaritan city. He stays in a Samaritan city to teach them, while at the same time, he is not sticking around with the Jews at all. He keeps leaving. Every time he does something for them, he keeps leaving. But when the Samaritans ask him to stay, he stays for two days. 
when this official comes to Jesus, Jesus doesn't say to him, oh, well, you know, let me go down to Capernaum with you and I'm going to spit in some mud and I'm going to put it on your son's head and it'll be fine. He, 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 almost, he speaks and it happens. Now, why is that important in this context? Because that's supposed to be the power of a king. The king is supposed to have the power to say something and it happens. Now, we talk about earthly kings. It's, it's one of those things. I, I love, and this is not a, a criticism of any particular president or anything, but I love when presidents issue executive orders like their laws. I've decided this should happen. And everybody goes, mm, no. You know, and, and so often that happens because they don't have absolute power. But when a king said to people, when he said, I want you to go and attack, um, if, if there was a king of Merrimack, and he said, I want you to go attack Bedford. I want you to take all their riches and bring them home. And the people of Merrimack then would mount an army and go to Bedford, and we'd get beat up because Merrimack, Merrimack's police, or Bedford's police department's going to take us all to prison. Um, but, but the, you know, if there was a king, that's, that's how kings work. That's how kings worked in the ancient world. And Jesus simply issues an order to a sickness. And the only person that recognizes it, seems to recognize it, is this guy who asked about it. He says, isn't it amazing that that's the question he asks? Right? He says, he says to his servant, servant say, hey, your, your son's been healed. And the guy goes, yeah, so what time did that happen? Think how weird that question is. Like, it's not... This is, this is what blows me. He doesn't go, awesome, fantastic. It's like he's already gotten through the celebration part of it until he sees his kid. When he sees his kid, he goes, I just want to know what time of day did it happen. Because I want to know who to give credit for. Because if it had happened at any other time of the day, he could have just said, well, the just fever broke and the kid was healed. But the fact that it happens exactly when Jesus said, go home to your son, that's the moment of faith for this guy. It's the moment when he realizes Jesus did this. So Jesus is being exalted as a king, but he's the king of the people that the religious people don't want the king to care about. He, 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 they want him to be their king. They want him to set up their kingdom. They want everybody else to be cast out and, and all of us religious people, yay for us, we've got a king, we've got a messiah, we've got our God is standing with us, isn't this fantastic? And Jesus is intentionally going to people that are outside of that group and they are proclaiming him as king. That's why everybody's mad at him. If he had been doing miracles for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, do you think they would have tried to crucify him? If he was working exclusively for their good, if Jesus was coming in and going, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a really absurd miracle. My brain's not working. Um, so he's like, I'm going to give all the Samaritans donkey ears, like Pinocchio, right? Um, and that, that way everybody's going to know who a Samaritan is, so only the righteous people can stand together. The Jews would have applauded him. They would have said, oh, that's amazing. That's so wonderful. Or if Jesus said, I'm going to make all the Romans uh, fall into the Mediterranean Sea and, and they're not going to be able to, and they're just going to sink. And they would have been so excited. But Jesus constantly is going to the outsider. He's going to the person that's outside of the, the edge of acceptable and building a kingdom of them. 
Now, this was important to John's original hearers. Because for many of them, their parents were slaves and servants and tradesmen and workers. They, most of them were Gentiles. They're not Jews. They, they are not Torah observant. They're, they're outside of what, the, what should have been acceptable to Jesus. And, and these, this second and third generation of believers need to be made aware that it was because of Jesus that they were where they were. That Jesus' grace extending beyond the barriers of what is acceptable to us was part of why we actually became or acceptable to the previous generation is part of the reason why we became part of the kingdom in the first place. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because what happens to any group um, after a generation or two? We were just, we were just having a conversation about um, with somebody about a group that um, the first generation of folks that were working, they were fantastic, communicating, connecting, everything. By the time you get to the sec- second or third generation of leaders, they just feel that things are, they're entitled to it. It's, it's, there's an expectation, right? Doesn't this, isn't this the way it works? Isn't it always the way it works? How many of you have ever been a part of a, a business that was a startup, that was exciting and new and exuberant right at the beginning? Anybody been a part of something like that? And everybody's excited, right? Everybody's like, ah, it's energy and money's coming in and it's fantastic. And by the time you get to the second or third generation of leadership, what does it become? It's becoming entrenched and bureaucratic and, and, and controlled and, and everything's legislated and, and, and held down. Well, the church was getting to that point. They were getting to a point of, all right, it's, it, we were blessed. We've got grace. It's us so much. And John... The old elder, the old apostle, he writes all these narratives and he says, no, 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 just remember, you're only here because God loved the world. You're only here because Jesus intentionally went to the ones outside of the limits of our human expectations. He went to the Samaritans, he went to the people that worked for a corrupt king. I mean, do you get any more corrupt than stealing your niece from your brother? I don't know that you can get any weirder than that. And the expectation, all that was required for Jesus to to go to that person was for that person to come to Jesus. One of the the things we always talk about at, at Bedford Road is creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. That's our vision statement. It's plastered all over everything. The whole idea of creating those environments is... How do we create a space and a time where people, regardless of their background or their, their faith journey or their questions or their skepticisms or anything like that, are able to meet Jesus as close as possible to a pure relationship without all the, all the baggage and, and all of the extras that, that glom on as, as people get comfortable with the way that they, they do things? Um, when, when I first started as a, as a pastor, pastors always stood behind the sacred desk. Right? Um, now, I'm five foot four. Those of you that have just met me, you've noticed that I'm, I'm vertically impaired. I've always been like this. It's not like I shrank. Um, and, and my issue with, with pulpits had, was always that if you put me behind a giant piece of furniture on a high platform, 
guess who you can't see? Like, oh, this mysterious voice speaking the scriptures. Where is this person? You know, oh, there's a little head. I look like, you know, like a little old lady driving an old Lincoln. You know, you can just barely see my head above the edge. Um, when, when we came to this building, by the way, the, the, the pulpit we had, which was a gorgeous handmade thing, but it was so big that I kid you not, the, 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 the layer part of it was carpeted. That's how big it was, like the part where you put your Bible. It was huge. And um, Bob bragged in being generous and kind to me. I came in and I looked at it and I went, no. And Bob goes, don't worry. And he reaches down and there's a little stool that he pulls out for me to be able to stand up. Nope, nope. This hobbit stands free, boys. This hobbit stands free. Um, but, but the reason I actually don't use pulpits is because a pulpit is a barrier. It's a statement of authority. I speak, you listen. Right? Now, we don't think of it that way, but that's kind of how it is. It is, it is and, and that, that structure of using the pulpit, that actually comes from uh, the Reformation. Because prior to the Reformation, prior to the Protestant Reformation, when, when you went to a church service what was you know what we would call a mass today and they elevated the host they did the whole i mean everybody in europe basically did the catholic thing even not the catholics um but they actually would do the entire thing looking the other direction they never talked they never they didn't you know they didn't um they didn't turn around and engage people and stuff like that your whole purpose was to do the 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 eucharist the communion thing and the the priest was turned around and he was speaking in latin which you may or may not have understood and, and what happened was when uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, both of whom were university professors, most people forget about that, they were both uh, theology professors, doctors of theology, when they started the Protestant Reformation, the first thing they did was turn the preacher around, but because they were academics, academics spoke from a desk. That was their position of authority, so they brought the desk into the church. And that's where the pulpit came from. It's not in the Bible. It's not like Jesus was get up on the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, all right, I'm going to share the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Paul, uh, Peter and, and Andrew came in and dropped the, the platform. It wasn't that. that. That barrier, for a lot of people, it's, it's, well, that preacher at the pulpit. Now, there's nothing sinful about pulpits. But, but that barrier for people, it was a restriction for people. It, 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 it's, a, it's something that stands between you and the word of God. Uh, one of the reasons that we avoid a lot of uh, uh, Christian ease in our church, and obviously you can't get away without using some shorthands, but, but one of the reasons we do that, that's not because we want to be hip and cool and, and awesome. We did that on our own. We're all set with that. Um, the reason that we do that is because we, we don't want to have a barrier. Um, we had a, a, a woman named Pam years ago who came and, and, and came to faith in Christ and she was having conversations with folks in the church. And she came to my wife with a list of words. She didn't know what they meant. She's like, should I learn all these words? You know, and they were words like justification and propitiation, um, sanctification. I mean, I don't remember all the list. And, and I was sitting there going, no, we need to learn to explain those words. We need to talk in a language that people can hear. So there's not a barrier of, a, of an us and a you, right? That, that well once you once you get the sacred initiation then you're going to get all you're going to get the lexicon you, know, you get the little red book you get the bible and then you get how to read the bible um it's one of the reasons i mean the the bible that's in my head is the king james bible translated 1604 published in 1611 it's the bible with all the these and the thous and the s and the s right that's in my head that that's still how i memorize scripture that's what i grew up in 
but the problem with that is so often that language has changed so much that people read it and go, I mean, when I was a kid, we used to have people that prayed in Athens and Est because that's what they thought God talked in. They're like, God, thou hearest us when we doth speak. And I'm like, you don't know Jesus didn't speak early modern English, right? I mean, you're going to really do that. You've got to go Aramaic if you're going you're to do that. There's barriers that get in the way. And Jesus doesn't just wait for people to jump over the barrier. If they are willing to come to him, he's willing to come to them. He's willing to meet them where they are if they're coming toward him. Now, this is an important distinction. So often people read the Bible and they go, well, Jesus, Jesus went out and he went seeking after people and, 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 and he, he went and found people. He found people who were looking. He went and found those who were looking for him. He didn't go and drag people in. There's a, there's a whole theological thing called irresistible grace. This idea that God just saves whoever he wants to save. And you don't get any call on it. Complete election. He just picks you. And um, that's not it. But when, when we are honestly looking, even in our imperfection, even in our brokenness, even like the Basilikos, this guy who just, all he wants to do, he's just asking for Jesus to heal his son. His belief is so incomplete. He doesn't know Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't know Jesus is the Son of God. He doesn't know Jesus is, is, he doesn't know anything about him. All he knows is this is a guy who does supernatural things and my son needs a supernatural thing, so I'm going to go. And then when Jesus meets him where he is, he comes to faith. And John says to the church, and I want to remind you that this gospel is a message to the church. He says, look at how Jesus loved. Look at how he loved. And look at who he loved. And be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Um, our church does not have to be, I'm about to say something controversial, so get used to it, it happened. Our church does not have to be a welcoming congregation. And you know what I mean. In order to be welcoming. We don't have to throw a rainbow flag out front in order to tell people that regardless where you are, Jesus is, look, is calling, come to him. And he'll do the work. He'll do the transformation. He'll bring people into, into, into order um, and discipline. That's, that's the verb, by the way, of disciple. It's not discipling, it's disciplining. Um, Jesus will, God will work through his Holy Spirit to bring us into proper submission to the order of, of the world that is revealed in the scriptures. We don't need to walk around and advertise. We don't need to say, well, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to make a big deal about it. Because you know what? We are going to make a big deal about biblical marriage. We're not going to apologize for that. We're not going to apologize for our view on the scriptures that says God created man and woman he created them for each other, one, one man, one woman, for life. Once you're in that marriage covenant, that's all it is. And if you're not in that marriage covenant, you shouldn't be doing what thing, things that occur in that marriage covenant with anybody. That's pretty straightforward. I think I covered that. We're not going to apologize for that. But we're also not going to turn people away because they don't fit. How dare you non-Christians not act like Christians? Jesus allows people to come. He takes down the barriers that hold them back from coming to him. 
Then he meets them, he supernaturally transforms them, and they believe. That's what happens with this guy. This is what happens with the Samaritan woman. You know that Jesus didn't have to talk to her. You know the reason I think he talked to her? To be perfect, I mean, other than he was thirsty. He knew what was going on inside her head. Why on earth is this Jew hanging out at my well? And so Jesus says, hey, give me a drink of water. She says, you're a Jew. You can't. He's just letting her voice her question, which opens a whole conversation, which brings a whole group of people to faith. He stands in this guy, and he talks to him, and he heals his kid from a distance, removes the barrier so he can believe. We need to be about the work of Christ the way Christ was about the work of Christ. Now what that means to you and how that gets lived out in your life is going to be different for every single person here. We're not all going to be the the crazy evangelist who's willing to um, just go anywhere and talk about Jesus. We're not all going to be like that. Some of us are going to be the people who love and care for the people in need. Some of us are going to be the people that answer the questions for the people asking questions. Some of us are going to be the shoulder that someone cries on when they lose their loved one. Some of us are going to be the Sunday school teachers and the nursery workers who are caring for the children of the people who are coming to church and trying to just share the gospel with them and their life. Some of you are going to have to be the one who confronts sin in the life of people. And that's going to make it uncomfortable. Some of you are going to be the loving husband or wife or parent pastoring your family. Praying for um, your spouse. Praying for your children. Ministering where you can. There's going to be all those different places that we're going to do the work of Jesus the way that Jesus did it. But I want to encourage you that as the church, we have not only the responsibility, but the privilege and the power to do exactly that. We just have to believe that if Jesus calls us to this, if Jesus calls us to minister to the Samaritans, the sick, the, the basilicos, whoever it is, We come and we meet them where they are with the message of Jesus. And we wait and we watch. We're patient when belief comes. And when it comes, when it happens, we can give all the credit to Him. We can give all the credit to Him because He's the one who makes the transformation, does the supernatural thing. Let's have a word of prayer.